And uh, I thought about this considerably over the week and uh, what we need at this juncture, uh, what would help us the most in looking forward toward Passover, which is not that far away. I'll uh, give this a title later, but I'll start out uh, discussing marriage here a little bit. Well, most people in life either marry or want to marry, and uh, you here, most of you have been married, and uh, some of what I have to say, you can look back in retrospect. It doesn't in some respects apply to you on a physical level, but I think as we go through, we'll see that it applies to all of us in spades. Uh, let's consider <clears throat> how we come to marriage. We use the expression a lot, we fell in love, or I'm falling in love, or I think I'm falling in love. And there are all kinds of songs, all kinds of movies, all kinds of books about falling in love and how it happens and romance stories that people read. It's all about falling. But when I think of falling, usually I think of dire consequences like sprained ankles, broken legs, uh, death, uh, because falls aren't something that we generally want. A fall represents a loss of coordination, a loss of balance, a an uncontrolled thing we go through as we tumble down a mountainside or off a curb or whatever. Maybe we use that term fall in love in place of another descriptor because in a sense it's true. It's an uncontrollable, it seems, situation. You meet somebody, you get to like them a little bit, and then that little bit turns into a little more, and then emotions begin to get involved. And you begin to feel a desire to be with them more and more. And then as you lose control more and more, you get to the point where, I don't think I can get out of this. This is taking over. It's taking control. Now what do I do? And we either get cold feet and find a way to back out, or we keep falling more uncontrollably in love, we say. Now, are you falling in love? We examined falling a little bit. It's kind of an uncontrolling, uncontrollable thing that just happens to our emotions. What about the word love? How is that defined? Different people might give you different ideas, and most of them are vague and ethereal. I think rather than saying falling in love... We could substitute a couple of words that describe that inebriation uh, called love as falling in desire or falling in emotion because the process starts basically with emotion. At that point, when you are falling uncontrollably into these emotions about this individual, you're not thinking about compatibility. You're not thinking about uh, anything other than how you feel. And you get where you feel more and more like being with them until it is an uncontrollable desire to be with them or think about them all the time. Then you are completely inundated in emotion. Now, it goes from there <clears throat> to talking about some realistic things. Once people have that emotion there, then they begin to talk about kids someday. They begin to talk about jobs, careers, uh, looking to being supported or supporting. Uh, they begin to talk about where they would like to live, 
maybe not them specifically yet, but they talk in general terms of things they like to begin to find things that are common to them. And then as it goes and goes, they finally get around to talking about marriage at some point. Uh, some suddenly get control of their emotions and run off when that word's mentioned. Uh, that stops that emotional fall. Uh, others let it deepen and let it ripen and go on talking about those things. And eventually they decide they want to be married. And then we come to marriage vows. And typically, when we start thinking of marriage vows, people don't use church-generated vows anymore that used to be used in marriage ceremonies by uh, most churches. Now it's become popular to make your own vows and tell each other what you vow to do for each other. And those can have a wide range of things that they might promise each other. But traditionally, we have used such terms as to have and to hold, to honor, to cherish, to love, whatever that means, and to be faithful and not uh, have any others in the physical relationship. Uh, so faithfulness is part of it. Most now have taken the word obey completely out of it uh, because they don't want to obey anything or anyone. Now, in taking that out, <clears throat> that indicates that there is no one who is in charge, and therefore, I think it guarantees lots of fights, because <laughs> neither party is in charge under those circumstances. So, we say these things, and as we fall in love, we begin to make promises to each other. We begin to think about, I love you eternally, and a lot of songs are written about uh, the 12th of never, or eternally, or however long it is that we've decided, and this is, this is forever. This will never end. We will always feel the way we feel tonight. This is our marriage. It is special. Our feelings are special. Our emotions are special. No one will ever interfere in the way we feel about one another. So in our minds, it is permanent. It is eternal. And most everybody goes through that. They have blissful goals, things that they will do and how things will always be. Okay. So far, we've examined things that are easy to say, <laughs> easy to dream, but hard to do. Now, it's kind of like Christianity. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian, or I'll be a Christian. Easy to say that. And you know what? Modern Christianity has made it easy to be a Christian. They've said all you have to do is accept the name of Jesus and you're a Christian and you're saved. And that's all there is to it. doesn't matter what you do, what rules you follow, you're saved. How can it get any easier than that? That's pretty easy. No rules. That's an expression the Australians use a lot, I think. No rules. How's that work out for you? And yet the Scripture says it's hard to be a Christian. You go through trials, troubles, temptations, uh, punishments, all kinds of problems. And then he says not to be hearers only, but doers of the Word. So, in preparation for marriage, that is basically what people do. How many times have you experienced or heard or seen people who were thinking about getting married, sitting around and discussing the rules of marriage. Here are the rules that we will live by. Did you do it? I'm going to live by this. You're going to do this. I'm going to do this. You'll do that. 
These are our rules. Now, if you sit down to play Monopoly, what's the first thing you do? You say, what are the rules? And everybody gets boned up on what the rules are. They get boned up on what the goal and the purpose of the game is so that they might achieve it and win. How much depth do people use in discussing the purpose of marriage and why they get married and what it's all about? Where's, where are the rules? Did you learn the rules of marriage in school? Did they teach them in fourth grade or eighth grade? Did you go to church and they taught you all the rules of marriage? Here's rule one. Here's rule 346. Uh, here's, here's the rules you've got to live by when you're married. I never went through one of those courses. Never saw them uh, on a high school or a college prospectus. All right, so we start out with these lofty goals in marriage. And then what happens in real life? Some fail quickly and totally. Some marriages last a night. Some last two, three weeks. Some last a month or two or six months or a year, but some fail very, very quickly. Some fail over a period of time. Maybe they get into it five, six, seven, eight, ten years, and man, I'm tired of this. What happened to all those emotions that were eternal and forever? And they get divorced or kill somebody or whatever. Now, some partially succeed. Now, they stay married to get along Nah, don't want to get a divorce, leave the kids orphans. So we stay married for the kids, or for whatever reasons we find. Our heart's not in it, our mind's not in it, but we'll do it for the kids, or whatever other reason you decide to stay together. And then you have some who have pretty good success in marriage, and they stay married for 40, 50, 60 years, 70 and do so fairly happily and fairly successfully. So you have a pretty wide gamut there of what happens to people who get married. From almost total failure from the beginning to fairly good success over time. Now I'll point out another category, and that is none. Not one marriage thus far has been totally successful. Not one. Who do you know? Who have you ever met who had a totally successful marriage, never had trouble, never had fights, never had disagreements, never had failures? Absolute perfect relationship all the way through for 60 years till death did them part. No one hasn't happened. There are, I've run into a few people over the years who claim that, but they're lying because they haven't had perfect success. And there have been problems there. Maybe they just have not admitted them and don't talk about them and haven't solved them, but they're back there somewhere on the back burner and haven't even been brought up. Now, there's not one human being that hasn't sinned, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there's not anyone who's lived a perfect life. And if there's not even one of those, then you couldn't find two of those. And if you can't find two of those, you won't find a marriage that's been without a ripple somewhere along the line. Show that that is a, an analogy because the Bride of Christ includes 144,000 people and we all have to be prepared for the marriage. So he says guess in terms of there being more than one bride because his bride is a composite of that many people. So he uses the term guess there representing those candidates to be the bride. And he never anywhere else tells the guests to prepare themselves and put on their righteous garments. It's only those candidates to be the bride that are addressed that way in any other scripture except that one. So I won't go into that in detail again. You can go back and listen to that series and it'll do you good anyway. 
But the one person who didn't show up dressed for the wedding was cast out. Just use one as an example. There will be others who desired to be part of the bride who will not be there, I'm sure. But that one example is used of someone who showed up, who dared showed up, not prepared. Now, if you're going to marry Christ, remember all those things that you said you would do when you were marrying a human being? Eternity? Love forever? Faithfulness forever? All those things that we promised each other that didn't happen? that we couldn't live up to, wanted to, and then as we get to the end of a marriage, we realize we didn't do and wish we could go back and redo because we didn't live up to what we had hoped to be. Christ will not allow that. He is the perfect mate. Now, if you're going to be His mate... You have to be like kind. You have to be like Him. Marriage can only be between like kind. That's why as young people we explore each other's backgrounds and thoughts and ways of approaching things to see if we have commonalities, to see if we're of like. That's why he says bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. You know, the more two people think alike, the better they'll get along. If one always wants to go that way, and one always wants to go that way, they don't get along too well. But the more they both want to go the same way, obviously they're going to get along better. So when we want to go the way of the world, we don't get along too well in our relationship with God and Christ. When we want to do what they do, think like they think, then we get along a lot better with them, don't we? Because we're on the same page. We're in, a, in one accord. That's why it says there in Amos, can two walk together except they be agreed. No, if they can't agree on much, eventually they're going to fall somewhere in that divorce line that I gave you quickly or after a little time or maybe after a long time or whatever. But they're only going to walk together so long if they're not agreed on enough things to keep them together. And we're only going to walk this Christian life and succeed so long as we are able to agree with God. Because He is the one who grants His righteousness. He is the one who grants eternal life. And He's the one who grants the opportunity to be married to himself. He holds all the cards. Now, he has already told us, all through this book, the Bible, who he is, how he is, how he lives, what he does, what he thinks. And therefore, we are to come into conformity with that. Herbert Armstrong called this book a rule book on how to live, or a rule book on life. And that is a very true statement. I think we might even take it one step further. It is a rule book for marriage. This book contains all the rules about how to have a good marriage. Because what ultimately is our goal? To marry Christ. So, Yes, in a general sense, and well, in a specific sense, it's a rule book for life, but the rule book for is the same thing. How to live in or out of a marriage. And if you're going to have a successful marriage, you better follow the rules of life, because they're the same as the rules of marriage. So, I asked you earlier, how many people really think about the rules of marriage before they get married? How many people do you think in this nation, percentage-wise, say, we're thinking about getting married, I think we ought to read through the Bible. So they spend their dates reading the Bible. Not very many. There might be a few. 
if they're really, really, really religious types. But most of them are going to movies, they're going out to eat, they're going out to look at the stars, and so on and so forth. They're not reading the Bible to read the rules of marriage, which is what this book is. Now, the book itself says, you Israelites aren't following the rules I gave you. He said, even sometimes the Gentiles, without ever having seen the rule book, come to realize that their society to work at all, there are certain rules they have to follow. Don't kill and eat each other would be a start. But he said, even the Gentiles come up with some of the rules. So out in society as a whole, you have some people who may have been trained by heads-up parents or maybe gotten some things in school or Sunday school or whatever, or maybe they even with their minds logically thinking say, you know, if you do this, 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 and this, you're going to have trouble. Or if you do this, 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 and this, you'll probably get along better. So some people, either through training or automatically, seem to perceive some of the rules that you have to go by, even out in society, and they have better marriages than those who see no rules at all. I'll do what I want to do. I'm the redneck macho boy, and that's the way it's going to be. And their marriages don't last too long. There was a song called, Put Another Log on the Fire. I don't know if you ever heard it, but it went like, boil me up some bacons and some beans and go up, raise a car and change the tire, uh, fix myself uh, some dinner and go and patch my old blue jeans and uh, come and sit down and tell me why you're leaving me. That was the punchline. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things like that you could refer to. Because he makes the rules. Now, we've all heard this one, but sometimes it doesn't hurt to consider the principle. The guy got married, got in the wagon, starts driving the horse home, and the horse stumbled. And the guy said, that's once. His bride's, what's that all about? So they go on, the horse stumbles again. The guy says, that's twice. Of course, she's thinking all cuddly things about her wedding night and doesn't quite grasp what's going on probably. So they go on a bit and some horse stumbles again and jerks the wagon. The guy pulls out a gun, shoots the horse. And the wife gets startled and looks around and says, why did you do that? He said, woman, that's once. So the rules have been established in that marriage. There's only one rule. <laughs> you do what I say when I say it. Now, let's tell another one that you've all heard, which is kind of the flip side of that, where somebody had been married for a long time, and they asked the man, what is the secret of your success? Now, most people haven't had much success in marriage, right? So they asked somebody that apparently has had success, how did you succeed? What's the secret? He says, well, he says, it's pretty simple. Before we got married, we decided that I would make all the big decisions in the marriage and she would make all the little decisions. And he says, this has just worked beautifully for us. And he says, thankfully, there have been no big decisions yet. So that one shows... That's the only rule in that marriage. You do what I say, whether it's the man or the woman, either one. But that doesn't work too well. So, let's go to, while we're close here, Revelation 21. Now, here's where the marriage has transpired, and he sees Christ and the bride coming down to initiate the millennium. He saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So these who are coming with him have gone through the preparations, they have learned the rules, they have followed the rules, 
and through a certain amount of mercy and grace, they have been approved and then married to Christ. Now, He has given a lot of promises ahead of time. Just like a physical couple will make all kinds of promises and things they're going to be to each other and pledge to be this, that, and the other thing. Uh, Here, He says, verse 4, God shall wipe... Wait, wait, wait a minute, let's, uh, let's read verse 3 too. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. So He has promised that this bride He's bringing down, He's going to live with. He's going to dwell with her. Now, a lot of people make that promise, and then they spend a lot of time somewhere else. But He said He's going to dwell with them, and I think it's in... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, We will ever be with him. He will not go anywhere that we don't go. We'll be together from then on, all the way, from the first resurrection on. So when he says, I'll be with you, that means he will never leave nor forsake us. He says that in Romans or 1 Corinthians somewhere, uh, where he will never leave nor forsake. He will always be there. That's one of the promises he makes during the engagement period. Now, he did tell the disciples, I will go to my Father's throne and make preparations, and then I'll come back. So, he did say, I will be away from you for a while. But you need to be preparing while I'm gone. Song of Songs goes into that. How he went away, and she was supposed to be prepared, and he came back and knocked on the door, and she was all cozy in bed with her teddy bear, and didn't want to get her feet cold and get up and open the door. And then she realized, oh, I'm thinking of myself. I need to be thinking of him. And then he said, nope, you're not thinking of me. I'm gone. So then she runs through the streets looking for him. Too late. <laughs> Done been gone. But he promises will be with him from when? From the first resurrection at the seventh trump. From then on, I'll never leave you again. You're going back to the Father's throne to get married. I come back to put down the rebellion on the earth. You're going to come with me. I'm on a white horse, and you're clothed in white garments riding behind me. And then he comes on down, and we rule with him on the earth a thousand years. So when he says, I'll be with you, he means it. He tells us here in the end time, I'll be with you in Jerusalem and Zion. I'll come and dwell with you even then. I'll start early being with you. But he hasn't made the promise at that point that he would never ever leave us and go back to the Father's throne without us. See, it's a promise I'm going to come and dwell with you, but we're not married yet. So... Uh, He'll come and go as He pleases. But once we're married, He's with us and we're with Him forevermore. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, we make those promises and we hope we can keep them. I'll not do anything to ever make you cry. There's a song about Was it Ray Price? That if he ever makes you cry, I'll be there. No, it's Freddie Fender. I'll be there before the next teardrop falls. I will save you from all tears that your ding-dong husband caused you to cry. It's kind of the theme of that song. There's thousands of them in any genre of music. But he is one who can wipe away all the tears. That's an incredible promise to make. You better be able to back that one up. There shall be no more death. Now, death is a horrible, difficult thing. I performed a service to an old friend, or for a service for an old friend who had died at age 80 uh, just this past week. And it wasn't really a happy, happy, joy, joy thing. Uh, It was sad. It was uh, a terrible grief, especially for the widow. No more of that. Neither sorrow. Did you promise your wife or your husband 
all these things we're reading right here before you got married? No. The best you could do was until death do us part. <laughs> That's the best you could do. But you couldn't say no more death. You couldn't say no more tears. Nor sorrow. Now, everybody's had some sorrow in their lives, right? That's something you couldn't produce. This guy says he can't. Nor crying. No more crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. I lost my wife recently, and she went through at least 20 years of severe pain. Every day, all day, every night, all night. And it got worse and worse the last 10 and then 5 and 3 years. And on her deathbed, she said, I thought I was in pain before, but I didn't know what pain was as that disease attacked her inside organs and killed her. And I felt so helpless. I wished so desperately I could relieve her of her pain. And I couldn't do a thing. I couldn't help. I couldn't promise her no more pain. Thankfully, her husband-to-be can. For the former things, all of those things that were hurtful and evil are passed away. There's the promises he makes. And then he goes down into verse 9 and says, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now remember, she's gotten on her wedding garments. She's pure, she's white, she's unspotted. She came as a virgin bride to Christ. All sins forgiven, completely pure and white. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now remember in Ezekiel 16 how he said he adorned ancient Israel with all kinds of nice clothing and jewelry and so on. And then she went out and played the harlot and broke every marriage vow that she had made to Christ. Every covenant, every portion of every covenant she had broken. So he divorced her. That marriage didn't work out. Just like most human marriages don't work out. Who was at fault? Was the covenant at fault? Did Christ do anything wrong? Did he live up to what he told her he would do? Absolutely. But she didn't. She broke every rule and every promise that she made with the thunder and lightning at Sinai and every other promise she made, she broke. And Christ said, I'm not going to live with a woman like that. So he divorced Israel. And that was because of the failure on just one side of the marriage. One side was perfect and the other side was not. And it destroyed the whole relationship. But he didn't give up. He says, I'm going to start a new covenant. I'm going to give it new rules. Even more binding rules. He didn't do away with the law. He made it even more binding than it had been in the past. Because he did not want people living physically up to a certain standard of rules, but denying the mental and emotional fulfillment of those rules. So he says, I'm not going to have through eternity a woman that I live with who says, all right, I'll keep your damn rules. But I don't want to. To put it sarcastically and a little crudely. But that's the way they look at his rules. That unholy, unjust, damned law that we did away with. So I don't think I'm out of school here. No, he wants the spirit, the attitude the desire to please, the desire to keep the rules. He wants us in accord, the same mind. So he made the rules even stiffer in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Don't only not do it, don't even think about doing it. Now that's how he did away with the law. <laughs> made it even more binding than it ever was before. Basically the same rules. He just added another dimension to it. 
Then he said, I'll also give you my spirit, my mind, my attitude, my power, so that you can actually do this. And then he came down here and lived to show us how to do this. Because we couldn't get it on our own. We couldn't understand it. So he said, all right, I've told you to become perfect, mature, as I am mature. Now I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to live 33 and a half years, and I'm going to be tempted in every point just like you, and I am never going to break one of the rules. Indeed, or even in thought. Now the impulse to break them had to be there. The temptation to break them had to be there. Otherwise, we couldn't say he was tempted in all points like as we are, and that there was no temptation and no desire to sin, then he can't be our Savior, because we all have the impulse to sin, to lie if we want to cover our behind on something, to kill if we get angry enough, to hate if we feel like it. We have the impulses to do wrong every day of our life. To be selfish. That includes a whole lot right there. He was never once selfish. Did he want to be? Yeah. If possible, let this pass from me. He, he didn't want to go what he was going through. But he said, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. I will go through it, and I will go through it with the right attitude. Did he want to marry Mary Magdalene? Probably. If he didn't desire a woman and didn't desire a wife, then he wasn't like you and me. Right? Now, people think, yeah, he was just human, so he went ahead and married her and had a bunch of kids. That's not what the Scripture says. That's not what it says. He didn't get married, but he wanted to. And he found Mary or whoever else he was attracted to quite desirable, just as you and I might or do. And he said, no, I will not let my mind go there. The thought came. It wasn't wrong to have the thought. You can't keep the thought from coming into your mind. It's that temptation that has to be denied. It's putting that thought out before it conceives and brings forth sin, as the Scripture says. Get it out before it is sin. Some of you better get out pretty quick, because they'll become sin pretty fast. No, he had to go through all of that to show us, you know, I'm asking you to do something but I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done. Overcome the world. Don't sin. Put on your righteous, unspotted, holy garments. That's his standard. That's his bar for us to be married to him. All right, shall we all throw up our arms and go whoring after the world? because we're not going to make it to be that perfect and sinless in this life, are we? Maybe you look through rose-colored glasses and think you are, but I try to be a little more realistic, and I know I ain't going to make it. I'm not going to be sinless before this is over. So what do I need? I need someone who died for me. Our songs and poems go, I'd swim the lightest ocean for you, I'd climb the highest mountain. Yeah, sure you would. I would die for you. Well, for a few, Scripture says, somebody might even go so far as to die for a really good man. So there is a time when we might die for somebody, but not too many people will do that. Most people threatened with torture and death will rat you out before they'll die. That's just reality of life. But he died for us. And his life was worth more than all of ours because it was perfect and ours are far from it. And therefore he said, my life will cover 
all sin, so that I might account you worthy in spite of yourself. That's what grace is. It doesn't mean you can go ahead and sin because you'll have grace. Paul put it that way. Oh, okay, shall we just let sin abound so that there may be even more grace? No, you work at overcoming and growing and doing the best you can not to sin. And then because you're human and you will fail, you have the grace and unmerited forgiveness of your Savior is what you have. So it's law and grace. Keep the law as best you can and pray for grace and forgiveness and mercy because we all need that. But again, he didn't ask us to do anything that he didn't do. So when he sets the standard, that's what we live by. If you're going to start thinking about baptism, what is that? Baptism is a result of what? Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized. Repent simply means change. So to be baptized, we need to change. Change what? What are the rules? What should you change? Should you change which restaurants you go to? Should you change which job you have? No. You need to look at the rule book and, see, and compare it to the culture around you. Compare it to your thoughts. And then whatever doesn't fit these pages, you begin to change. If you're keeping Sunday, you get in this book and you say, it says keep the seventh day. So you change. If it says, I don't like Christmas and Easter, you say, well, I've been doing that. And then you read about God's holy days, so you change. Now you keep the holy days instead of the pagan holidays. So you read the rules here and you begin to change. Now those are the basic overall rules, Sabbath, holy days, and so on. But then it gets down into the very, very pickiest points of life. Read Proverbs. Read any part of the Bible. And you'll find that it tells you what to think and what to do. This is the rule book for baptism. I'm starting to tell people, how do you prepare for baptism? Now, used to, in the Worldwide Church of God, we had the booklet all about water baptism. And it covered some basics, which were good to cover. We had uh, Why Were You Born, which was about, what, eight quarter pages to explain in a little bitty tiny booklet what the whole purpose of mankind is. And you know, it didn't say a whole lot, and it wasn't near as thick as this. But combined with the Spirit of God, who was opening a mind, it came clear we're born to be God. That's what we're here for. Reading all about water baptism, which is a little thicker, and gave you a few scriptures, you began to realize, I have to adjust my thinking. But back then, you could say, well, I want to do this and this, and I want to be part of the church. So you'd write in, and they'd send a minister out, and then he would counsel with you. You wanted to counsel about baptism, he might go through a lot of different scriptures and show you what baptism is all about, what it means, what you're expected to do. Well, and that was fine and good, and a lot of good decisions were made, and a few bad ones, uh, because you never know when you sow the seed what will be on good ground, bad ground, thorns, and so on. But it worked fairly effectively, I think. Now we don't have that luxury. Now people are scattered all over. They don't have local churches for the most part. They don't have access to somebody to guide them and lead them through all they need to think about before they get baptized. So my advice at this point is, this is the rules of what you have to change. But it says repent and be baptized. Change. Here's all the things you've got to change right here. It's real simple. A little thick, but you know what it does? 
It doesn't say very many things in here. It just repeats the same ones over and over. All the way from Genesis to Revelation. It repeats basically the same things. So it doesn't take too long to figure out that wherever you open this book, it'll tell you just about the same thing to do. But if somebody wants to prepare for baptism, I would say, read at least from Matthew through Revelation with the thought in mind of not just reading it for the sake of reading it, but with in your mind be thinking, here are the marriage rules. Here are the rules of Christianity. If he says repent and change, then I need to do everything that is in here. And as you read through each one of these books, it's not, the New Testament isn't really that thick. It doesn't take that long to read. But baptism needs preparation. It is a commitment, a very deep commitment to not follow your way or the world's ways and their rules. It is a commitment to follow the rules of God. Because he is in charge as the bridegroom. And yes, he is the one who makes the rules. And in some respects, the first joke I told you is closer to the truth than the second one. Woman, that's once. Now, how many times will he forgive you? More than three. <laughs> but the rules never change. But repentance and forgiveness are a daily, throughout life experience. You don't just repent before you're baptized and change a few doctrines. Repentance is a lifelong exercise in trying to be like Christ is. Every day that goes by, you try to change your thinking. Wrong thought comes in. I got to live by every word of God. I guess I better get that one out of there. And then you get those crowded in there. Lots of bad ones sometimes. Got to get them all out. So repentance is forever. Until you are made perfect in the resurrection and you're incorruptible. That's not just your flesh. That's your brain. It is incorruptible at that point. And He will not allow you to have eternal life until he is convinced that you are incorruptible. Why? Because Satan was a created being and he became corrupted. And he didn't want to live by the rules of God anymore. And rebelled. And God does not want that repeated ever, ever, ever again. So he has to be pretty well convinced that you will be the type of person who will grow, who will overcome, who will go through attitude adjustments, who will read his rules and do your level best to keep them. And then when you fail, you'll say, Oh, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need the blood of Christ. He's looking for that kind of commitment. So when you're preparing for baptism, hey, the best thing to do is say, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to change? And the answer starts in Matthew 1 and goes through Revelation 22. Everything you need to change, everything you need to fix, everything you need to repent of, you will find in there. So coach yourself through it. Take what time you need. Stop and pray about it. Be brutally honest with yourself. Am I doing that? Am I not doing that? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will keep you busy for a while. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. That's one of the primary reasons that marriages fail. A, people don't know the rules. B, they don't follow the rules. In ancient Israel, God gave them the rules. They wouldn't follow the rules. Now he's beefed up the rule book, given us his spirit as an upgrade, and said, follow the rules. 
And if you can't quite get it done, I'll make up the difference through forgiveness and mercy and grace. So if you want to prepare for baptism, I think there's a pretty good map to follow. See what the rules are. Make up your mind you will follow His rules in life. And once you have know, you know the rules pretty well, and you've convinced yourself and promised Him, I will follow your rules, then you're ready for baptism. It's an attitude. It doesn't mean that you have to know all the rules perfectly, or have to obey them all perfectly, because baptism is only a beginning. It's like a child being born, or a child being begotten and growing in the womb for nine months until it can be born incorruptible spiritually. So, through nine months, it does a little kicking and screaming and makes mama uncomfortable, and doesn't get much accomplished, but it grows, doesn't it? It starts out as a little smudge and grows and grows and grows until it's ready to be born as a full as a fully developed developed human being. Now that's what he expects. We are like a mother in a womb. I mean a child in the mother's womb. Mother's a church, we're in the womb. And she is to nourish us and help us to grow until we're ready to be born in the kingdom of God. She is there to remind us of the rules, to help us keep the rules, to encourage and inspire us, to help us keep the goal of birth into the kingdom of God ever forward in our mind so that we don't forget what we're doing. The church is here to help you prepare for birth into the kingdom of God and marriage to the Lamb. That's her purpose. Not to get in the way, but to prepare you. So, here we have the rules of marriage that we need to become very, very familiar with because we've got to live with them throughout all eternity. Now, like in physical marriage, can an ideal marriage be achieved? What is marriage? On a human level, it is the mating or the merging of two different personalities. They have different backgrounds. They have different genes. They have different nature and nurture, in other words. They have two ways of looking at and doing things. And they have to make adjustments in order to get along. Now, they don't have to make as many adjustments prior to the marriage as they do after the marriage, right? Because you're still in la-la land and fantasy world before the marriage. After the marriage, you come down to the reality of actually living with each other and some of the unpleasant things that you may have hid from each other. I mean, you might have been embarrassed to burp in front of your wife-to-be, how about two years later? You know, we put our best foot forward until our hind foot catches up sometime after marriage. <laughs> that hind foot isn't always quite as pleasant as the front foot was. So, whether they will have success will depend on how well they can merge their personalities to think alike so they get along. And some people are adaptable and can change, can adapt, can do whatever they need to please, and some have difficulty with that. And there you will find the difference in success levels. Now, in the process of preparing for marriage, there are three words that everybody's looking for. Three words. You can probably figure that out pretty fast. What three words are they looking for? Let's get rich. Is that the three? Let's have sex. Well, that's maybe 
somewhat close. Is that the three they're really looking for? Well, he may be, she may not. Sometimes it's the other way around. But that's not the three that everybody's looking for. Even that. Let's get house, car, kids. All nice things they talk about. Not the three words they're looking for. Let's have honeymoon. Well, that's a nice thought. They plan that and figure all that out. Not the three words they're looking for. Let's get married. That's not even the three words they're looking for as human beings. Now, that may be a goal, but that's not the words they're looking for because they want to hear something before they hear, let's get married. You've got it figured out by now. I love you. Everybody wants to hear that they're loved. If they don't feel like they're loved, all this other stuff about houses and cars and honeymoons and all that doesn't mean anything. As they get to know each other and fall, as I said, in love or emotion, that's what they want to hear. That's that breathless moment. I love you. And sometimes guys have, more than women, I think, have trouble with that. It just won't quite get above their Adam's apple. And that's what she's waiting to hear. Will you marry me? I haven't heard I love you yet. <laughs> you know? We all want to feel loved. Why? Well, those three words summarize all this other stuff, whatever it may be. Whatever our goals, our aspirations, our fantasies, we've got to feel like we're in love that we are loved. If you feel unloved, you're going to have all kinds of problems in a marriage. You know, there are people who marry for reasons other than love. And they'll even admit it. Well, we're in the royal family, and we have to marry within the royal family. So, maybe the king here and the king there arrange the marriage. You two are getting married because we want to keep the crown where it is. There are people who marry in the same family because they all go to Yale or Harvard and they want to keep it that way so the ruling elite of the world remains in the family. So there are political marriages. There are financial marriages. You think these 20-year-old girls that wear 80, marry 85-year-old billionaires are doing it for love? Oh, I just love you so much. Every crack in your face. <laughs> No, I think they would have to admit they're marrying for money. <laughs> well, maybe they won't admit it, but we all know better, don't we? So there, there are reasons people get married because they think they have something to gain, which is selfish, other than love. But 99 point whatever percent of people who get married, that's the key thing to them. They want to be loved, and they want to hear, I love you, and they want to hear it often. And then somewhere down the line, with some people, it gets harder to say when the hind foot comes forward, and things don't go the way they dreamed and the way they planned. And sometimes it gets so bad, it's kind of hard to choke out, I love you. And then there's some point at which it gets easier to say, I divorce you, than it does, I love you because they haven't been following the rules of marriage. And therefore, it's not working so well. So, the point is, they start out with emotion. And about as far as most people think when they get married is emotion. Oh, I love you. I love you. I can't be without you. I must be with you every moment. I'm going to call you at work every 30 minutes and get you fired. We have to be together. You're five minutes late from work. I nearly died. Where were you? Oh, no, that's a different subject. But we want to feel that closeness and that love. And we expect that emotion that we felt before the marriage 
to exist forevermore. But those euphoric feelings will always be there. But they don't remain on that level. Life itself begins to impinge upon that euphoria at some point to one degree or another. And there's nothing wrong with the old shoe feeling either. <laughs> you know, we're comfortable together. And maybe the euphoria isn't quite what it was 40 years ago, but we still love each other. So, I mean, there are varying levels of all this stuff. But we want to feel loved. And when you get to the point you don't feel loved, the marriage is on the skids. If you don't feel loved, you're not as responsive in any room in the house. Now, there's been one... I, I, I'll retract what I said earlier. There has been one perfect marriage on this earth. didn't last long, but it was a perfect one while it lasted. Adam and Eve. There was only one rule. So long as they kept that one rule, they were in euphoria. They weren't doing anything. They didn't know what evil was. They'd never experienced it. They'd never seen it. They'd never thought it. Evil had never come into their minds, having been perfectly created by God to be that way. And it only gave them one rule. Man, this thing's full of lots of rules. This book. But they only had one. Don't eat of that tree. Okay. No big deal. We're happy. We don't need that tree. Then along comes some guy at work and says, uh, Hi, honey, you look good today. Want to go to dinner with me? Well, all he offered is a piece of fruit. wasn't a whole dinner. But that was enough. She broke the one rule. And immediately the marriage went on the rocks. They resented each other, suspected each other, blamed each other, and lived a marriage basically of misery and selfishness for nearly a thousand years for breaking one rule. Need to know all the rules. Now Christ is going to have a perfect marriage that lasts forever in contrast to Adam and Eve. He knows all the rules. He keeps all the rules. He says, if you're going to marry me, you need to know all the rules and you need to keep all the rules. Now, I could have been using through here all this time commandments, but that doesn't, it doesn't fit our thinking in a way. In marriage, often the last thing they ask are, what are the rules governing marriage? I mean, those are ethereal things in a way. I'll cherish you. Uh, I'll, I'll honor you. You can translate that a lot of different ways. Take out obey. I won't do that. But you make promises that are basically... Emotional are based on emotion that you don't define as to how that is to be carried out. Now, with God's rules, He gives you the rule, and then He spends a lot of time explaining how that rule is to be kept. There's only ten commandments, ten rules, right? Really? Right? But they encompass every part of life, every emotion in life. So he spends the rest of the Bible explaining to you what that rule means and how to keep it. Now there's your reason for Bible study. If you're going to be the bride of Christ, he expects perfection in his bride throughout all eternity. And if you keep the rules, there will be no tears, no sorrow, no death, or any of those things. It's when you break the rules that those things are caused. Whatever thoughts or rules that a couple starts out with in their rose garden approach, they expect to keep, and they think they can. And then they find they can't. 
and that their mind and their thoughts and their emotions and their feet go other places. And when they break the rules, then the marriage begins to fall apart. Because they are not showing proper honor, proper respect, proper love, if you will. They're being selfish. They're being greedy. Whatever. What, what rules human beings? Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, basically. Those pretty well comprise the works of the flesh. And that's what people live by. Because that is what they are motivated by. That is what the world and Satan around them have caused their minds to be. Deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? So to live a human life married to a man or a woman is fraught with all kinds of difficulties because we have carnal, selfish human minds. And that drags us down. And the degree with which we can resist those pulls and drives and temptations is the degree of success we'll have. Whether we really knew the rules or just sort of perceived them out of nature like the Gentiles sometimes do. If you don't follow the rules, you don't win. In fact, you're playing Monopoly, they'll kick you out of the game if you won't follow the rules. What do you mean I'm in jail? I'm getting out of here. You don't have a card. Well, I'm throwing the dice and I'm getting out of here anyway. Game over. Got to follow the rules, man. Got to count your money right, too. Got to follow the rules. Same with marriage. Same with eternity. Well, that's just the introduction. So I'll stop there because there's a lot that we want to cover here and a lot of it has to do with preparing ourselves for Passover. So uh, we'll go from there.